the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. I'm excited for today's movie. We're doing uh, Lou Adler's Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. It was originally called All Washed Up, which um, I like that title a little bit better. Honestly, you know, I don't want to kick things off in like a (laughs) negative light, but I I think that's a perfectly great title. Yeah. And, you know, this movie didn't do well. And uh, all the things I've read about it, they pretty much blame everything except for the fact that it had a really <laughs> long title. No one <laughs> ever brings it up. In the early up. '80s, you know, one-word titles were, were like, you know, a, a, a tight, small title that had the plot yeah. of the movie in it. Um, Safely fit on a marquee. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains is like an extremely long and sort of vague title. Yeah. Um, but you know. It is what it is. And I love this movie. And I think as you and I both being band people, I I think we can't help but feel something for this. But if anything, The Stains just feels like a pretty true to life experience as much as you could imagine within within a compressed amount of time, you know, in a movie setting. We've wanted to do like a a movie about bands, Mm -hmm. a a band or bands for a while, you know, and I think a lot of the reason is, yeah, because like you said, we have both had a lot of experience playing in bands over the years. And I always think about doing it. I'm like, man, there's just so few movies I feel like really kind (laughs) of capture uh, the reality of being in the band and like, yeah. Kind of like the often grittiness or like all the turmoil, not like drugs and all this stuff, but just kind of like the, you know, jealousies and rivalries and, and hardships of like, you know, trying to do something with no money and, you know, organize like a group of people to yeah. to like work hard. And I feel like this movie captures a little bit of that. I mean, it, it definitely captures more of like a band that's on the next level who's like touring it's like a, it's a multitude of like three different bands and yeah you know, we'll get into that but i but i do think that there's very few movies that kind of capture that most of the time it's the same traditional story of like the first act they're like you know trying to make it and then boom they second act they get huge and then the third <laughs> act is them like you know they're down they're down downward yeah. spiral drugs and sex and yeah everybody hates everybody yeah um it, generally that that nobody story. loves us anymore <laughs> <laughs> the backlash has begun. Um, and not to, not to say that that doesn't happen. They could have been the biggest band in the world. <laughs> exactly. I think that The Stains is a very excellent depiction of a specific time period. It encapsulates like the transition from the 70s to the 80s, that weird, awkward period. Yeah. It really does. And it, it started off... Um, a lot of you know a lot of things it was it inspired a lot of future girl bands too and um i'm sure we'll talk about that later yeah i think it's a movie that like um definitely sort of like accidentally was ahead of its time i yeah i don't think it was meaning to do that at all even though it did involve some real life punk rockers too 
And there's a lot of, I think there's, a, I think there's a lot of things in the movie and we'll get into it, you know, that are relevant to today's uh, music landscape. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but other things to talk about with the movie, uh, we'll definitely talk about director Lou Adler, uh, writer Nancy Dowd. We'll talk a little bit about the cast. A lot of, you know, non-professional actors, a lot of the cast was made up of real musicians um, and then like sandwiched between first timers uh, first timers uh, <laughs> yeah. that went on to do a lot of stuff like Laura Dern and, and Diane Lane. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to talk about here. A lot of commentary on the music industry. And one thing I really want to talk about with you is is your feelings on the the ending of this movie, the the last like 2-3 minutes of the movie yeah. and then the the big climactic scene leading up to that too so yeah, that's, yeah. that's one thing i want to get into later yeah we'll get into that later yeah because there was a original ending and then a redone ending mm-hmm. alternate ending that ended up being used for the for the final finished film and if you haven't seen this movie i would really want you to track it down it's not the cheapest thing to find out there but if you can find it you know maybe piecemeal out there and in clips it is really worth a viewing and it's been a delight going back and and re-watching it I didn't discover this movie until way later like when it was released on DVD that was the first time I'd ever heard of it yeah I, I I did not know about this movie till maybe like four years ago yeah on my Facebook feed it was a list of like 10 movies that are you know, like criminally not on Blu-ray or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just on there. And I was like, what is this movie? And then I started looking it up and tracked down the DVD of it. And I was like, man, this is awesome. Yeah. yeah. So same, same, same with me. Um, X and I tracked it down and we're like, what is this movie? How have neither one of us like banned people ever seen this? And then kind of had our minds blown. We'll get into a lot of stains talk. Um, then after that, uh, we'll give you our picks of the week. I kind of stayed with the people in the band movie with uh, 1988 Satisfaction, which was a movie that also had a very early role for Julie Roberts, who went on to do some, you know, a couple yeah. big movies. Yeah, she was in a couple things. Sorry, in something. You you didn't go for the banner out for your pick of the week. <laughs> I did not. Um, I. You did kind of a wild card movie. I did, and I know periodically I, you know, pick a movie that's newer. And not that this movie is came out last year or anything, but it was from 2002. And I've always had a a little soft spot for Diane Lane. And Unfaithful is my favorite movie um, of hers. And it, it would have been a crime to not talk about it. Uh, that, that's one movie that I, I feel like there are so many layers to it that you could, you could talk about it forever. And uh, I, I, I love that movie. I absolutely love Unfaithful. I'm glad you're doing this movie. Thanks, man, because I'm I'm pretty happy you're doing Satisfaction. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, of course, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moments. And before we get into our first clip from The Fabulous Stains, Lindsay, can you just give us a quick lowdown, brief summary on what this movie is about? I would love to. Two recently orphaned teen sisters and their cousin uh, form an all-girl band in the hopes of ditching their no-future-town together. They talk their way into joining an ongoing tour of aging kind of has been like this metal band and a fizzling out but still kind of hot at the time UK punk band. At first no one except their Rastafarian tour manager takes them seriously until they use their distinctive look and sound then the media to become an overnight sensation. There's a lot that happens in this it's a if, if you're 
in a band or have been in bands, there's no way you're not going to take something out of this movie or not identify with something. But I think it is a, a fun movie in general to just kind of experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think especially if you've played in bands, there'll be a, there's a lot to love here that <laughs> yeah, you'll identify with. We'll go to our first clip from Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, then we'll come back. We'll get into our first discussion. Sounds good. You. Hello. You don't fool me for a minute. I know all about you. You came here tonight thinking you'd see some cute and wonderful rock star. And you hope maybe he'd take one look at you from up on that stage and he'd fall in love with you just like that. Then your savior could take you out of this dump of a town you live in. You could be different from all the other girls. Bitches on drugs. Suckers! 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 Be yourselves. These guys laugh at you. They've got such big plans for the world, but they don't include us. So what does that make you? Just another girl lining up to die. So, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains was directed by Lou Adler, who wasn't uh, someone who had a lot of experience directing films. He was mainly a music producer, uh, worked very extensively in the music industry, um, but he was also a producer for the comedy albums of Cheech and Chong. Mm -hmm. And so he got his first directing experience doing the film Up in Smoke, which was a pretty big hit for comedy film standards at the time. And so that kind of put him in the in lines to direct this film. He also was already kind of like in the film industry with um, he was the executive producer for Rocky Horror Picture Show. But he was offered two scripts, this this film that he ended up directing in Airplane. And he had his option of which one he wanted. And he thought the script Airplane was awesome. He was quoted as saying he felt that it was a movie that the writers should direct. And he felt a more connection to the music yeah. movie because it was a you know a world that he had come from and so of course he went with this movie and airplane went on to be like a massive success which <laughs> just man it's just, it's really... comical really it is just to to think about how how insanely popular and and big airplane yeah. was compared to this movie yeah compared the comparison because no <laughs> one knows this film and like no one knows it this. didn't even get a dvd release for like it wasn't even decades. released in yeah. theaters. Yeah. Like it, it's just it's completely crazy. And the film's writer was Nancy Dowd, who in the film was credited as Rob Morton. There's a little bit of a story behind that. Um, we'll get to that. But Nancy Dowd is known for writing the movie Slapshot and also the critically acclaimed Oscar-winning movie Coming Home. And so she was pretty well known, and or at least at the time, pretty well known. And Carolyn Kuhn, who wrote for the well-known music magazine Melody Maker, was brought on as a technical supervisor to make this movie look super legit, uh, real punk. You know, she she took the, the anyone that wasn't in a real band uh, that was in the Stains movie 
um, the actors, the stains themselves were kind of teaching them how to be punk, how to act, what to look like, and really designed the idea for the way that the stains ended up looking their hair and style and makeup and everything behind that. And uh, kind of a kind of a wild jump for Nancy Dowd, like going from a very kind of like specific sports comedy and really uh, kind of like invented that genre of uh, specific style of like how the beats and the story go for a sports movie. Like, oh, yeah. I feel like Slapshot yeah. was like the structure for like every sports movie that came out like in the 80s, hmm. you know, and early 90s kind of that were like in a, in a comedy whale that like sort yeah. of like our carbon copy of you know Slapshot and because I had seen all these sports movies so when I watched Slapshot I was like oh this is like all these movies I've seen before but because I had seen them first <laughs> yeah you know, I wasn't as in the Slapshot and uh like this coming, is the one before that yeah, yeah and Coming Home is an excellent film I love that movie but kind of wild to see someone and it's great yeah you know, it's awesome it's a, a real uh talent of a writer to be able to jump genres yeah and uh I know I read that she was friends with the Ramones and like kind of this script for the stains was sort of born out of her seeing like a Ramon show and being inspired by yeah, and, and her like kind of feeling like the the 70s were like dominated the end of the 70s being dominated like pop music or like you know not really like having very much edge and so you know she kind of broke down this story into three different kinds of bands mm-hmm. uh, that are all sort of like merging onto a tour And I think that's one of the most obvious things about this movie is the three bands that are on this tour bus, how starkly different they are. We've got the aging 70s metal band that are kind of has-beens, and they're the ones that are kind of all washed up, like the the movie's original title would indicate. And then you have this contemporary punk band. And when this movie was written and when it came out, this was what was happening at the moment. And if anything... It was almost like punk was fading out a little bit or like that, you know, UK kind of punk movement was fading out a little bit. I think this was a year after Sid Vicious and the Sex Pistols had died. Um, And so you have the the band, the looters who are representing punk. And then you have the Stains who are this emerging what Nancy Dowd and Carolyn Kuhn thought would be the next, you know, like believe that the next jump in music would be, would be girl bands and would be like this voice that, that wasn't heard. And I think like the Go-Go's came out in 78, but you know, weren't really gaining traction until MTV much later. But that's what um, kind of this represents is like the one fading out, the contemporary, and then how that contemporary is soon going to be the one fading out. And this is going to be the next, the next jump. And there's a lot of commentary in this movie as far as how the music industry works. What we have as far as, I mean, fickleness, I think, is one of the biggest things in this movie, whether it is, you know, the public, the music scene itself, media, fans, kind of all of that is uh, is really embodied in this movie. Yeah, and I, and I think that there's like, if you look at, kind of the way music trends over the last like mm-hmm. 30 or 40 years you know or even if you take it back to like the 40s you know like uh early 40s uh mid 40s like frank sinatra they had like the the sock hop the yeah. sock hoppers <laughs> yeah. you know and like by the 50s like that was you know sinatra was like no longer like Passé. a hip thing yeah. yeah you know and then like you you know you have the dawn of like early rock and roll and 
um, by the 70s, you know, it's it's kind of funny to me because when Lou Adler was talking about what cool music was, he was like referencing like Buddy Holly and these bands <laughs> from like the late 50s, you know, and it's just like you're talking about stuff that's now already like would seem so old to people that were like in the set you know kids in the 70s like listening to punk music and there are some truths in them in the movie too Mm -hmm. because you know they're the managers kind of like once the stains get hot he wants you know he's already got t-shirts made and he he kind of like is blowing it out like he knows they're not going to be hot for very long like he's seen trends in music even the bands are pointing out like the middle band that's on the tour hates the old guys who had like a head a hit <laughs> song like 20, you know, or 10 years ago, yeah. they're making fun of them. And then the, the stains, you know, as soon as they get big, they're like, Oh, we're past you guys already. And I think this movie kind of shows some of those sides of like the music industry that usually aren't, um, really like put under a microscope in movies. I think that becomes really obvious when we have the guy from the band in the movie called uh, The Metal Corpses, played by Fee Waybill. He says, you know, if you're not yourself, you're nobody. And, like, he's like, yeah, I was like you guys, like you punkers. I went through my phases, and I did this and that. But, like, when it comes down to it, like, whatever, man, you're like nobody. I've seen all this, like, stuff before. and. I, I wore leather jackets, like, cause they're you know. I have like, my glitter yeah. phase, and the, the thing is, is he might seem like old and crotchety, but like he's not wrong. And the reaction to that is Ray Winstone from the Looters, the lead guy from the the punk band the Looters, reacts aggressively and like starts punching him and like sprays a beer in his face, and that's the reaction from the contemporary band. And then you have the Stains that are watching all of this. And I mean, if you think about it, a little bit later on in the movie, Diane Lane, who plays Corinne, Third Degree Burns, she straight up steals a, a song from the looters, like intentionally. And, you know, there's there's a little bit more worked into the story, like what happens around that moment. But I mean, everyone is climbing. Everyone is trying to get to the next point. And the idea of what's going to be the next biggest thing like the stains did create their image they were honest to who they were and they as a one media personality says in the movie those girls created themselves so they weren't put together by something they did do it no matter how they did it they did it by themselves they you know brought in originality they brought in passion and sort of like and sort a message. Of, yeah, yeah, and, and and sort of like this like unbridled like rebellious youth that mm-hmm. you know really um I don't think is something that like you can muster if you're not of that age, you know. It is this sort of like early adolescence sort of like you're just mad at the world and if you've already had like some things pit against you that early in life like you you know you're re- you're ready for battle. The stains were definitely like a show of like a band that has something that people were attracted to you know the stains start out and they're not like the most talented but they they work at it and they do have a look already and then they work at it and become better like they don't have a drummer which i kind of like love a little bit um but they do work at it and become a better band but the whole time they've had a message and i and i think that this is it's crazy how much this was foreshadowing like the riot girl movement in the in the early 90s and there's certainly a feminist undertone to this movie and that's not to say that the stains were you know the first girl band out there certainly not i mean we've got the runaways and the welders and the go-go's were in 78 there were girl bands but they were not a popular thing and certainly 
I mean, hell, even even now, bands that have a girl in them or, God forbid, are all female are still kind of marginalized or looked at in a different way. But the the message behind the stains, and this is a really big part, is uh, I don't put out. Like, I'm going to dress how I dress, and that is going to be kind of like in see-through, lacy underwear things and like you're going to be able to see my body but you know what the message is you can look but you're not ever going to get this and don't be a jerk don't get screwed I don't put out and I am who I am I'm perfect the way I am and you just don't get me and I think that in a, in a lot of ways that was speaking to a lot of women who felt like they didn't have a voice at that time and no matter what if you're going to come out with a message like that it's going to fall on deaf ears with, you know, a particular gender that doesn't necessarily identify with you. Between like a look and a message, the the stains had what they needed to have and it didn't take very much to make them into an even better band. And I, I think I, I like seeing, you know, them be, become better when they start out kind of I mean, it is. That first show was real rough, but we've all, I mean, if you've yeah. been in a band, you know that that first show is always rough. And, and, the, <laughs> and the thing is, is like, I, the more I watch this movie, the more, and sort of like referencing my own experiences of you like can, yeah. playing with bands and like being in the band, the idea of a band having a look may seem very silly, <laughs> but... but after you've looked at hundreds, <laughs> thousands of different band photos and like, uh-huh. you know, advertisements of bands, having a look is a pretty big deal. The group like the stands were playing. Like if I saw that band photo, I'd be Oof. like, who's this band? There is something about that because we are captivated by things that we're unfamiliar with. And when you see something that's unfamiliar, you may have like an adverse reaction, but you have a reaction to it. Yeah. You know, you have some sort of reaction. There is something you know, that this movie delivers about a look that is, as far as the entertainment industry is concerned, you know, I think it's like a very important thing. And I'm not saying like, oh, you got to get out and get ripped or like people have to dress provocatively. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm just talking about something that's like an interesting look that's like different from what everybody else is doing is what draws people in. And think about this too from a late 70s 1980 perspective because that's all you have to go on like you have you have the radio and you have news and you have print ads it's not like we have social media you don't have that many resources to go on so you see a band on the news and the power of the media is a huge part in this movie yeah and this movie was prophetic in a way that mtv debuted in 1981 this movie came this movie was finished already they had shot it it took like two years before it came out and the suggestion in this movie like you said is like media hyping a band yeah and mtv came out and, you know you saw these bands that looked cool and you know you heard their music but you never saw them live yeah like a lot and, of a lot of times it was like on saturday night live that, yeah, like and, that's where you saw bands you know or like on on late night programs yeah and 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 so i guess the sad part of this movie is that it it was sort of like showing the dawn of of media television influencing people's view of a band before they have heard an album or like saw them live but unfortunately you know mtv had been on for about a year and exploded and when this movie came out it was sort of didn't seem as fresh and new this movie kind of just looked like a dated like mid 70s movie we'll we'll have a little addendum to that um 
MTV influence on this movie in our in our second discussion. But the the power of the media, just to kind of wrap this up real quickly, the the power of the media does play a role in this movie in that if it hadn't been for the stains making an impact on one particular newscaster and her being influenced by it, despite we see we see on screen her her male counterpart is completely putting down in like a weirdly passive aggressive way, putting down the band, putting her down. And she is almost kind of empowered in the way that she's talking about it, kind of coming back at him and saying, you know, this band has a message and if and and plugging them and being like, if you want to go see them, they're playing tonight at, you know, such and such. Like that is that's how bands got big was the radio was local TV. And, you know, like we said, this movie is of a certain time and it is a snapshot and it's certainly not something that you can remake I think I mean it it doesn't this this world doesn't exist anymore and coming on the tail end of the punk era uh, that it was and that dying out and just so many changeovers yeah the Staines movie is just um I think really encapsulates a certain time period it's really cool to watch no, yeah, and that's a, that's a perfect way to put it. It is very much like a time capsule of late seventies, early eighties convergence of, uh, you know, what was out with the old and in with this new, and and that sort of crossover between like people who were eighteen and now they're like, yeah. you know, in their twenties and they want to listen to what they've been listening to and a, a new crop of people who are turning 17, yeah. 18 and they want to hear something new because they're done with the stuff that they listened to as a kid. That was probably what their parents were listening to at that time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, we've got a lot more to get into. We're going to talk about the influence of this movie, the ending, how it was changed. And we're going to, we're going to get into a lot more. So let's go to another clip. Yeah, we'll go to another clip. We'll come back. Good afternoon. Who knows what you're gonna see? 
seems that here in Nowhere Land, it has become clear to several thousand very young women inspired by an unrecorded rock and roll band. So like we were saying in the beginning, uh, most of the cast was made up of actual musicians of bands from the 70s and early 80s, peppered in with first-time actors, uh, the main actor being Diane Lane, who is the lead singer of The Stains. I think and this was her third movie? Yeah, makes sense. And I, I read that she uh, beat out Jodie Foster for the role, Jodie Foster one yeah. role, who had quite a bit of experience. Yeah. You know, tons more experience than Diane it, Lane, but Diane Lane had that little extra something that... So you know. I, I think she looked like she would be in a band more. And even uh, um, was in Foxes with Laura Dern. That was Laura Dern's first yeah. movie. And, I mean, they would have had some chemistry having worked together before. I don't think you can go wrong with Jodie Foster, but I think that Diane Lane puts in just such a great performance. And she's had an interesting career because she, you know, did a like a large batch of movies from ages like 14 to 19 and yeah. then retired for a while yeah. and wasn't in anything. And then, uh, really kind of locked back into these sort of like dramatic adult roles, which I think she's kind of more known for today. I think so. Yeah. Uh, um, but you know, she did do quite a few interesting movies. In I remember her seeing her in Lonesome Dove, that, yeah. that, uh, mini series and, uh, Streets of Fire, which is, I thought yeah. about doing for a pick of the week, but I really am pushing for that to be a, a feature that we, oh, dude, that I'm, we do. Oh dude, I'm the, down for that being an episode. Yeah. I think she, you know, it has a mix of like this, like innocence and also like rebelliousness that really comes across. And I think any movie that has like someone who's like 15 acting, most directors will say like, you just want to give them as close to their, their character is in real life because oh, yeah. they, you know, they haven't learned to really like do a, you know, really get into a character, but I don't know, Diane Lane, that seems like <laughs> in the opening when they're interviewing her, she seems, I feel like there's like layers to her performance in this movie. Like she seems very kind of like burnt out on the world in the opening and then seems like kind of driven later on. Like mm -hmm. in the beginning, she kind of seems like, I don't care about anything. I don't want to work. I don't want to do anything. And then later on, it's like, she, this is really important to her. Like, you know, she gets like heavily involved in being the leader of her band. And I think if you were to ask Diane Lane, she'd put herself down and say, I think she does say in the commentary, I'd recast this role. Like I should have played it harder. But really, you know, like you were saying, she starts out a, a certain way in this movie and is is very like headstrong and pushing. And even by the end, when we see that the stains have, you know, quote unquote, made it, the person that she is then is even different from who she was starting out in the movie. And for a 15 year old, that's incredibly impressive to have that progression of a character and it be so believable. Like when you see her on stage, not at the, the final scene of the movie, but where the Staines crowd kind of comes back on them and, and rebuffs them, how she is, is, is not who she was in the beginning of the movie. I don't know if it's Diane Lane's performance or maybe like the style in which this movie was made, which is kind of like this gritty feel, mm -hmm. but this is one of the few movies to me where the lead character is a early teenager, but it doesn't really have like a coming of age movie feel to it. Yeah, no. Uh, this, and I don't know if it's because it's set to, because it's set in the world of like music, which is like not something that most, I think teenagers like being in the band is not would have been a normal thing so maybe that's why it doesn't feel like it falls in these coming of age movie tropes it kind of feels more of like a straightforward you know like music drama type movie i think going with that 
this is a movie about we're going to get in this band in order to get out of this dump of a town that we live in to it's there there is no coming of age because they've already lived a hard like rough life at 15 and and Diane Lane's character and her bandmate and sister uh, we're we're told have lost their mom and, and right in the beginning of the movie we learn that Diane Lane's been fired from her job and she's 15 you know like the girl has lived a hard life. She's already she's already an adult. So there is no coming of age. She's just like, I'm getting out of here and I'm going to do something for myself. And I don't care what I got to do to get there. And the other sort of main actor in this who also was not a musician was Ray Winstone, who was the lead singer of the Looters in the movie. And everybody who's in the Looters is in the band in real life. So they rehearsed a little bit, but they were able to kind of get these songs together pretty quick. Um, tough on Ray Winstone who wasn't in a band but had to like sing all the lead vocals Yeah. Um, but does a really great job I think and kind of has like a really good presence as a band leader and uh, he's been in a ton of stuff now I mean he's been in like 130 movies he had a pretty memorable scene in The Departed if you look at look him up on IMDb he's like got little parts in a lot of big movies but I think he does a really great performance in this and plays a scumbag really really well because he's just <laughs> he downright is, he is un, scumbag, un, unbearable you know I mean I just can't like imagine being being in a band with such a stroke of a dude <laughs> such a stroke of a dude and not to be outdone the real band members of the of the looters were Paul uh, from the Clash and uh, Paul Cook and um, uh, um, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols, so it's pretty cool. That's your backing band if you're Ray Winstone. Yeah, and those guys were a little gun shy about doing this movie too, since it was, you know, uh, Sid Vicious had died, and they're a little bit in the commentary. They were saying that they were like super protective of themselves. And um, I thought it was really interesting that both Diane Lane and Laura Dern were like, everyone was like, don't do drugs, don't do it, it's going to mess up your life. And just kind of were like, good, good all around people. There wasn't anything bad to be said about them. And saying that too, Laura Dern, 13 year old, 12 turning 13, she was like eight feet tall in this movie already. Yeah. But um, yeah, is, is another of the stains. And Laura Dern's gone on to huge movies and like I mean I don't multiple (laughs) David Lynch movies I love so many so many movies (laughs) and uh man the looters you know the music in this movie is really good I mean the looters I think put on like a pretty I would listen I would buy that album but they put on a pretty great set you know even (laughs) though they're getting booed by the Stains fans (laughs) yeah I'd buy a looters album I don't know if I would buy a metal corpses album I definitely would not um, but it was like we we said before, Fee Waybill and uh, Vince Welnick from the the band The Tubes. So it was pretty cool that actual bands were involved with this movie. And funny too that a movie's top build people are going to be guys from bands rather than like your main stars. I mean, you have Peter Donat, who I mean until until his passing like he he was a very well-known actor in in the 70s 80s and 90s um but for the most part you know like it wasn't um Diane Lane was top build in this movie and a 15 year old top build that's that's saying something saying you don't have a whole lot <laughs> 
a lot of star power to that's saying come see this movie yeah, if you yeah. like the sex pistols yeah. <laughs> but yeah i mean all around you know it's it's a little rough around the edges at times but i think overall like the performances are really good and I also want to make mention of barry ford who is a musician himself and he really is i think the only movie where he's actually acted in and, and he uh, worked on the songs in this movie too yeah yeah he all the kind of rasta songs that you hear uh that are playing those are those are his songs and he plays the tour manager lawn boy who you know has like several scenes and i think lou adler was saying in the commentary about how like you know his performance is he did great when they did rehearsals but <laughs> he said the big thing that stopped him from doing a good performance is when they were they would yell action he would just get really like kind of clammed up and he's the kind of person that brings i think like the middle ground like mm-hmm. he's he's like trying to keep everybody together i think like a good you know tour managers like you know trying to not take sides and like see everybody's point of view but then you also see he's got his own personal strife that he's dealing with that comes into play in the story and I don't know I think he was like a really good character I think it was like really needed so you just didn't have sort of like these bands nipping at each other through the whole movie yeah if anything he feels like the backbone he feels what he feels like the 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 backbone that that links all of these ribs these bands together and yeah keeps them from from killing each other and with that said when they're on the bus and just kind of like background scenes we have like this Rastafari m- music playing in the background and in a rock and roll movie it can it could feel out of place but for some reason it it does not if anything yeah. it's it's comforting it's, and it, it it kind of I think it breaks up like this sort of not mm-hmm. not this being like a straightforward like it's just like a straight up punk rock movie yeah. you know and and, and it's interesting cuz I think this movie is viewed as like part of the punk rock lexicon mm-hmm. of like movies that that came out in Hollywood It still felt really honest it, it didn't feel like it was trying to be anything and I do really attribute that to Nancy Dowd's feeling behind it and inspiration behind it carolyn coons like bringing everything that she did to make this look authentic and lou adler having the the background of the music industry behind him i feel like with all of these voices no matter if they were fighting um or disagreeing on on where this movie should end up i think all of that made this movie have a very real vibe behind it yeah i think if anything this movie comes off wildly authentic and this movie i was gonna ask you this you know this wasn't this i don't think this is a first time watch movie and what i mean by that Mm -hmm. uh, to our listeners is like movies where like i feel like it takes more than one watch to really like the movie and i know that sounds ridiculous you know because it sounds like what was wrong with the movie like the first (laughs) time i'm gonna watch it two times or three times and i'm gonna start liking it more but i do it's a movie i appreciate more with multiple views because I think I like see the performances more and it, it comes off like a very simple movie, but I feel like there's like a lot of little moments in it that add up. And there is a sort of like feeling of like destitute and like longing for to belong that I didn't really get the the first time I saw it. And I think like the third time I watched it for uh, before we did this episode, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, Christine Lottie plays. The, oh, man. the yeah because the band the stains is made up of of two sisters and two a cousin. sisters and a cousin and so one the cousin is portrayed by Laura Dern and her mom is portrayed by Christine Lati and before they take off to go on tour they're 
sort of stain with the Christine Lati character. And she gets interviewed once the stains take off and they become kind of a sensation. She's interviewed about them. And at first she comes up, you know, the first time I kind of, you know, I was into the movie and I wasn't really like focused in on her interview so much yeah. as something as being so much substance. But like the third time I watched it, like when she's talking about her daughter and how, you know, she feels like everything that her parents, like how they didn't believe in her and they didn't think that she could have a purpose or was worth anything, how she kind of like transferred that over to raising her daughter, mm -hmm. you know, and how she's like now that she's seen all these people responding to her, even though she might not understand music, being in a band or what that means or what it means to, to be able to be a part of something that's creative. She wishes that her Diane Lane's mom was still alive so she could see that all these people reacting to their band in a positive way and in an influential way. And man, that movie, that, that really kind of like broke me up the, the last time I watched it, I was like, God, this is a real powerful scene, you know? Yeah. She, she only has two scenes in the movie and they're lengthy scenes, but she's set up in the beginning as kind of just kind of trailer trashy, like how to not be a mom in the, in the first scene. And then the next one is the one that you were describing her saying, I'm glad that, my daughter was able to overcome me putting her down as just like my parents did to me like that. Like who says that you don't expect someone to say that in real life, let alone on television. It's just kind of incredible. And what, and what I love that the movie does is that Laura Dern reacts to it in sort of a somewhat emotional way. She's like, you know, first she's like embarrassed that they're interviewing her mom. Mm -hmm. And then she's like kind of listening to what her mom has to say. Stoic and like, I can't believe she's yeah, saying this, but, but, but what, crap. what I like about what this movie does and it does it in multiple times throughout is that it could go the route of like going into like a sappiness of like mm -hmm. the reuniting with Laura Dern and her mom or like they, there's no yeah. scenes like that. That's not what's important. They're not trying to like make amends and wrap everything up super neat and nicely and have everything connect. And you don't get that scene. So it's like this nice little moment. And then we go back into the world of like them trying to like figure out what to do with their band. And I love that about this movie. I feel like it, it kind of is like going against the grain of what I think a movie would do now. If they had that scene, we, we definitely see like the reunion scene of them, you know, like we, we love each other now and they would embrace, but you get none of that in this punk rock. <laughs> it's so rock and punk. roll to it's do so it like that. Roll, yeah. <laughs> And another total rock and roll thing is that writer Nancy Dowd leaving the production and uh, removing her name from the credits and going by Rob Morton in the credits that you see in the movie because of disagreements with Lou Adler. And this goes with um, Carolyn Kuhn, too. She felt pretty put off by the whole experience as well. I mean, not the entire, entire thing, but uh, Nancy Dowd experienced some sexual harassment on the set, there was a cameraman that like grabbed her breast at one point, and she just, uh, on on top of feeling disrespected by Lou Adler over the script, that was kind of just like the tipping point. But Carolyn Coon said that the original ending, which we'll get to in a second, she felt was completely muted by by Lou Adler, and that he was. And I don't know if she means literally or not, but she said he was just tearing pages out of the script and she just felt like Adler really just um, took a hacksaw a little bit to this original script and and Nancy Dowden and, and Carolyn Coon just had enough of it and, and left, left the production. And I think it can always be a, probably a difficult thing on sets where, because some movies, you know, you have the script is written and then 
a director is hired and, you know, changes get made, whether it's the actors like improving mm-hmm. or, you know, rewriting or the, you know, something has changed because of uh, troubleshooting, you know, from location or whatever. They got to condense a scene or like move something around to make it easier to shoot. But when a writer is physically there, you know, you invite the writer onto the set and they're, you know, this is a, a very specific script to like fit with like a music genre and then the writers there with the actors on set yeah. every day. <laughs> that can be a different situation, you know, where, you know, you start changing stuff and ripping pages out of a you script. F- yeah, you're going to you're going to have a, a creative difference. You know, you're going to butt heads. And I can I can only imagine how difficult that would be to have somebody, you know, take what you're doing and it's and it's too to take what you're doing because it's like Lou Adler didn't come from a directing background or a theater background like he hadn't you know or a female perspective it, background <laughs> exactly you know and so he's just sort of like ah, yeah we're just gonna do this I'm certain that that was probably like blood boiling yeah I can only imagine and that leads us to the ending sequence to this movie and at this point when we get to the big show that the stains are playing they're finally headliners they've replaced the looters as the headlining band on the tour the looters are now supporting them and it's almost as if they have fell for their own gimmick in in some ways but there's not really enough information there to make you feel like oh the stains are just posers now like they're just they're they're a shell of what they once were but in the end at this show, the looters open and all of the Stains fans, I mean, they're there just to see the Stains and they're just flipping off the looters and they stop in the middle of a song and Billy Ray Winstone reads everybody the right act and, and, and says, you all have been had. You all are just a walking advertisement. You've bought into this hair dye, this fashion, this everything that the Stains have been giving you. You're nothing but a commercial and in the end, it sucks, but it's like a man that, that makes the Stains fans rebel against them. And it's a really awful, awful scene to watch. I cannot imagine being a band experiencing something like that, let alone the actors and probably how long that took of getting shit thrown at you on stage and, and hair dye thrown at you. It is a scene that I I feel like is a little bit... um over the top I don't really feel like that would actually happen but for the purposes of movie making that is the the point that's that's needing to come across it's like an exaggeration yes. of like how a crowd yeah or how a fandom can like change so quickly going yeah. back to that fickleness yeah yeah and that is something whether it happens you know immediately on on the turn of a dime at a show or that happens with you know your friend's band that they were, I used to go see them all the time and then they signed with that record label and now they're all like cool and like, you know, whatever. They sold out. Like that happens. Whether, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, whether we see it manifested in the Stains movie like this or it, it happens like in real life, it, it does happen. And I, and I can understand like it, it does come off a little melodramatic in the movie, but I think I can understand like accelerating yeah. that so you don't <laughs> spend like 20 minutes on just, <laughs> Because they their rise to fame and their their descent is you know so quick in the movie as it stands it was a very kind of like melancholy ending they ended as soon as as, as quick as they began like yeah. their popularity and I, I want to say like they screened the ending for like just one showing and the crowd hated it well the the ending after the terrible show that they have 
um, it still kind of tried to be a little inspirational with Corinne, Diane Lane going on the news program that we've been seeing throughout the whole movie and her still being like, you know, I think every 16 year old needs to be on their birthday needs to be given a, an electric guitar. Like it's still trying to be inspirational. She still rebuffs Ray Winstone's character that's saying, come with me and be my groupie, be my guitar tech or whatever. And she still puts that off. But then as the original ending of the movie was supposed to be, these girls go by her on a scooter. One of them's got a guitar on her and they're listening to a stain song. And she like throws her head back as if like, ugh. Man, I mean, at least there's something. It's kind of inspirational. Yeah, and I, well, I think it's a perfectly great ending. You totally. know, maybe not melancholy, but like the ends on not the highest note. It's not. It's not a Hollywood ending by any no. by any means. It yeah. is certainly melancholy, but it's kind of like that. Ugh, what if this hadn't happened? But as the release of the Stains movie exists, as it as it does, the actual ending to the movie was filmed like a year and a half, two years later. And it is after the birth of MTV and the Stains have made it onto MTV and we see them looking a little bit older and they're very much emulating like go-go style, that that sort of thing. And it's not that it's bad. It's no, just, not at all. And it's not, it's not a terrible ending by any no, means, but no. it just, it seems like kind of unnecessary. And it also kind of, I feel like in some ways... It defeats the purpose of what they built up because their style is completely different in, in the MTV video <laughs> yeah. that they do at the end. And yeah. and it looks like they've been, they've changed their style because they're older. In actuality, a few years older, but I think mm-hmm. that's that was sort of the point of it's showing their success. But they're also singing the looters song, Join the Professionals, which <laughs> yeah. is the oddest thing to me <laughs> because it's like, wait, so they're still using the looter song as their hit song why aren't they using um, the song that they came out yeah, with? yeah yeah like, so that was that was the only thing to me that yeah. was like kind of like odd for the ending mm-hmm. um tonally it would have made more sense to go with the original ending like you said of them sort of inspired at the end but not doing this sort of oh now they're big and famous and we're just yeah. gonna watch a three minute video of them doing this song like an mtv video and then it just ends yeah but i don't think it's a terrible ending but i i would have i think uh I would have stuck with the original, but I'm sure that they were trying to fight tooth and nail just to get the movie, ha- get the movie oh. to make it a success because early reactions were not kind to the, to the movie and still that new ending didn't seem to help. This <laughs> yeah. movie kind of got buried. Paramount didn't even have a release for it because of those crappy reviews that it got it at screenings. And really if it weren't for the, late night USA uh, program Night Flight. If you remember that, if you were ever had some insomnia watching some late night weirdo movies, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains was one of those. It wasn't like in high rotation or anything like that, but that is where so many people saw this movie and taped it, bootlegged it, gave it to their friends, and steadily and very, very slowly, this movie has developed a cult following and a lot of people from riot girl bands like Bratmobile and Bikini Kill, Kristen Hirsch, uh, even even John Bon Jovi, even Courtney Love. Um, people have been influenced by this movie, and it is really crazy. As a, a fan of riot girl music myself, it is nutty to see this movie that was filmed in 1980 and see stuff from the early 90s that you're like, wow, this is... I can't believe this is predating this. 
but it really is incredible and it is really cool that this movie influenced so many actual real awesome bands to come after it yeah i think that says something to the testament of its originality and its dedication to like kind of like get behind what it is to be in a band and the music scene of of that era yeah 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 well, we'll come back for some final thoughts on the fabulous stains, but uh, we got to keep moving on. We'll get to our picks of the week. I, uh, again, kept it on the band front with satisfaction, but you chose to go a different route. You stuck with uh, Diane Lane for a movie that I truly love, uh, and that's um, Unfaithful. Unfaithful. What can you tell me about Unfaithful? Oh, Unfaithful. There's a quote from Unfaithful that always sticks out to me, and that is, there's no such thing as a mistake. There's what you do and what you don't do. It's easy to get wrapped up in the first hour of this movie. It's sensual and intoxicating. It's also a total study in human behavior, one that feels uncomfortably honest. And as the title of the film indicates, this is a story about an affair. It's about the absolute engulfing feeling one can have from an enthralling affair with an unexpected someone, and the guilt that can accompany such a thing and the unspoken secretive language between partners, rendering it impossible to fully hide any secrets of this nature. Diane Lane, the fabulous Dane herself, absolutely embodies this role as the cheating wife. And I'd venture to say if you know this movie, you remember a scene of her heading home on a train while thinking about her first lustful tryst with her Frenchman she barely knows, played by Olivier Martinez. Cutting between her flashing back to the encounter and her physical reaction while thinking about it on the train back home, man, it is powerful and really shows the strength of her acting in just this one scene. Between her like coy grins and half sobs, is she laughing or crying? I don't know. I don't even think she knows. But Lane's character of Connie toggles between feeling liberated yet stunned at what she's just done. Director Adrian Lyne, most notably A Fatal Attraction, which we discussed at length in episode four, juxtaposes moments like this with a more unfortunate occurrence that happens later in the film after Connie's affairs revealed to her husband. The first half of this movie is certainly squirm-worthy, meaning if you're uncomfortable with rising sexual tension, be ready to feel something. As she does everything but rebuff her inner feelings towards the Frenchman, Paul, Connie feels awakened from her suburban coma. Sure, she loves her family, but her marriage is painfully vanilla. Girl is repressed. And although reluctant and full of guilt, she's very open to being ravaged by this handsome stranger. Unfaithful is a movie divided into two parts. There's Connie's story, and then her husband, Edward, played by Richard Gere, who finds out about the affair. Line is such a master at exploring emotional conflict stemming out of sexual exploits. We quite literally see when the story turns its focus to Edward. As the audience, we've been seduced into understanding why Connie continues this affair, even though she's neglecting her normal responsibilities as a mom, let's say. And right as we're cringing at being understanding of that situation, it's revealed that Edward has tracked down Paul's apartment, but not before Connie coincidentally dashes out without Edward seeing her and leaving him to confront Paul about the affair without running into his cheating wife. Now, when you describe this movie to someone and say, well, Edward accidentally ends up murdering Paul, <laughs> it could feel a little trite, but this movie isn't just that simple. It's about guilt primal urges, and being unable to control yourself. 
As Lyne so skillfully and passionately depicts Connie shedding herself of her marital constraints, he does the same with Edward's flash of passionate rage towards Paul, then his desperation in attempting to clean up his crime. There is one thing that makes me kind of laugh throughout Unfaithful, and that is how comically inept both Connie and Edward are at hiding their misdeeds. Connie's terrible at lying and too caught up in the affair to really care, and Edward is such a dummy in almost every respect in cleaning up Paul's murder. Like, if you've seen any episode of Forensic Files, you'd be like, oh, honey, you real bad at this. You're going to get caught. Affairs aren't a new concept in movies, and and Unfaithful is a remake of a 1969 French film called The Unfaithful Wife. The strengths of this film rely so heavily on physical, gripping passion and the emotions that get stirred in, rather than the murder being the central focus of the film. Paul's murder is a result of passion, just as the affair is a result of uncontrollable passion. This is a study of human nature, and I've seen so much Dateline in my life that I know the story is not that far-fetched. Line went to his nine-and-a-half-week cinematographer for this movie, and if you're familiar with the intensity of that highly erotic drama, then you know what Line was thinking. Lighting, tone, smoke-filled backdrops, frequent dampness, all these aspects only furthered Line's emotionally gripping vision with every single scene where fingers are digging into bodies. I also appreciate seeing the passage of time, how Line does this in this movie. Like, you know how long the affair has been going on because you see how Connie's wounds that she sustained the day that she met Paul, you see them like slowly healing. That's kind of like a cool thing to look for. It's the little things like this that make Unfaithful such a visual and visceral treat to endure. The ending is kind of very open-ended and there isn't much of an overly preachy message, which I appreciate on both counts. And Richard Gere makes you feel shattered and heartbroken, even angry for him, but you also can't really villainize Lane's character. There's an understanding of how Edward temporarily lost control, and even before Paul is murdered, we felt nauseatingly concerned that this wasn't going to end up well for Connie. Lane's performance is a sucker punch to the gut. No wonder she was nominated for a Golden Globe and an Oscar for this movie. It's all about desperation, self-inflicted torment, guilt, and lust, all things that almost every person can empathize with at some moment in life, I'm sure. Unfaithful is certainly a very adult look at the deepest emotions of the heart, and like I said, the subject of cheating isn't exactly reinventing the wheel, but the way in which you explore the topic does matter. And Lyne's ability to expound upon the subject, combined with impassioned performances, Unfaithful is just really a movie that just sticks with you. I'm really glad that you like this movie, Justin. Yeah, I don't know that there's another movie to me about infidelity that is as raw as this one Mm -hmm. that also makes you kind of feel really like (laughs) kind of like bad for like everybody. Everyone. But like not but like in a way of like you you sympathize with everybody in the Mm -hmm. movie and you kind of see it from everybody's angle. And I think that's really difficult to do. And this movie really pulls it off, I think. And a lot of that has to do with all the performances. But yeah. and really like a movie that I can kind of like put on anytime and watch, even totally. though it's really dark. Yeah. There, the first time I saw this movie, I had like a weird like fever coldness. And I was just on my couch for two or three days straight. And my memory of it is unfaithful was like on a loop on tnt or tbs like 24 hours or something that's like what my fever dreams imagined and i feel like i saw this movie over and over and over and over again and i kept waking up to it and being like 
this is really like putting me in a crazy headspace, but I couldn't stop watching it. Like, how do you watch a movie and you don't villainize a murderer or someone that's cheating on their partner? It's just really, it's really amazing. Yeah. Well, and and I think the, uh, how you mentioned the bumbliness of the, (laughs) the Diane Lane and, and Richard Gere, it's like, but to me that makes their characters like you sympathize for them more because if they were like, oh, you know, immediately they they know how to yeah. clean up a murder site. And, you yeah. know, it's like they think of all the angles, but it's like to them, they're just like, this is so far outside of their yeah. reality. It makes you kind of feel for them even more because, you know, they're they're just like in a way and over their heads and you feel that tension. They have but, no yeah, idea what they're doing. Such yeah. a such a I mean, just an amazing movie. I'm so glad you like it. What a great pick. I can't wait to hear about Satisfaction. Well, I'll tell you, satisfaction is quite the opposite of unfaithful, <laughs> it um, is. and it's quite the opposite of of the fabulous stains. Though it is a movie about a rock band from Baltimore called The Mystery. The movie was uh, produced by Aaron Spelling, who did some pretty huge television work, namely Nine Hundred Two One Zero. But uh, this movie was an NBC production, and Family Ties was. A uh, big hit for NBC at the time, and so they were trying to build like a launching pad for Justin Bateman's career. She was one of the main stars of Family Ties. Um, most importantly, uh, we got the name of our dog Mallory from Mallory and Family Ties. My God, I didn't know that. But uh, the movie is 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 very. It's a very kind of saccharine setup. You know, it's like a a band from Baltimore who wants to go to, of all places, travel all the way to West Palms, Florida, to audition for a gig to be the house band for this kind of like country club setting. If you sit down on a Sunday and watch this movie and and keep your expectations low, it's a very fun movie. And I, and I don't mean that to bash the movie, but I mean, there's not a whole lot. You know, there's like 30 minutes of a movie and then the rest is sort of like, these them going to a beach and like everybody kind of falls in love with somebody you know i mean so it is a very like fluff type movie the music's like kind of like this sort of like generic rock of the late 80s but having said that you know we've got a very early performance by liam neeson a very early performance by julia roberts both of which i think like kind of show early on that they had like you know a genuine feel of like dramatics and and you know, it's, it, that alone is interesting enough to like sit down and watch the movie to see to see uh, the start of their careers. Um, but Justine Bateman, I think, really gives a, a good performance. I mean, maybe not the best musical performance. So she did. Uh, I'll, I'll give her credit. You know, she went and rehearsed and, you know, learned guitar and does the vocals herself. They didn't you know, she's not lip singing. You know, overall, it's it's a, it's a fun movie to sit down and watch again on like a Sunday afternoon, Saturday afternoon. And uh, one other thing I'd note is Berta Phillips, who plays a guitar player in the movie. This is the opposite of, of the stains. Like most of the people in this movie were actors, but Berta Phillips was one of the few that was a musician and did have some experience. She started off as being in the, as the main voice of the cartoon from Gem and Holograms. And has gone on to have like a pretty big career in composing and writing music. Um, but she, uh, I think, gives a good performance in this, but also uh, sings lead on Mr. Big Stuff, which is one of the, uh, I think, better performances of, of, of music in the band playing in the film. Yeah, overall, a fun movie to check out and a, a good pairing, I think, uh, with The Fabulous Stains. Oh, yeah, for sure. Very good, well-intentioned 
I, ho- I hope it didn't movie. come off like I was like bashing the movie, but I was just kind of like, you know, it, I would be remiss to not point out the sort of silliness of the movie, but I think it, and it's, it, it's in a good way. I think it, there, in a lot of ways, there were a lot of movies in the 80s that had a farcical feeling to them that weren't really based in reality, but it was like this idea of like a fantasy reality based, you know, in, in, in something that you could actually achieve. And yeah, Satisfaction is one of those. It, it is a perfect Sunday afternoon movie. It's a fun movie. They look pretty cool yeah. as a band. I'll yeah, they that. do look cool. Yeah. Well, uh, so those are... Picks of the week, uh, satisfaction and uh, unfaithful. Unfaithful, pretty easy to come by. Satisfaction, I couldn't really find any any place that was streaming it. Actually, uh, the the DVD was actually like not real cheap to find either. So I ended up uh, getting like a fairly inexpensive laserdisc off eBay, and that's how I watched my copies. On laserdisc, pretty yeah. It's which, legit, right? Which there. is not like a you know a very viable option for <laughs> most people probably in 2020. But you can find this on Laserdisc. Oh yeah, <laughs> you guys aren't watching Laserdisc out there. <laughs> I I, I uh, you know I celebrate all the mediums. You know I, you do love your yeah. Blu-ray. Yeah, I do love my Blu-ray, and there and this isn't available on Blu-ray. So do you have a beta player? I don't. Okay. No, we're I'm not. Ch- we'll have to change that. I'm not crazy. You know, <laughs> Betamax. <laughs> I only watch Betamax. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, let's keep moving forward. Uh, we'll come back for some final thoughts on the fabulous stains, but here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow you going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. That was fun. As I've said before, linking Billy Murray to something music related isn't too hard, but it's the honing in on a particularity that makes each one so special. And in the spirit of the Stains, if we're talking about linking him to a female musician, there's a few out there that come to mind, but maybe none more prominent than former actor turned super successful musician Jenny Lewis. A few years ago, you may remember there was a big rumor that she and Billy were dating. Even if you hadn't heard that rumor, just know that it was all the talk of the indie rock community at the time. So let's try to straighten out this story. Their rumored relationship blew up the internet thanks to speculation stemming from a premiere party from Billy's movie Rock the Casbah in 2015. A photo of the two singing on stage together and Jenny being referred to as Billy's quote, special lady friend by an unnamed source was all the celebrity rumor mill needed. The rumors were furthered by Jenny being one of the last after-party attendees to leave, and a source claiming that she was Bill's, quote, current younger love interest. As if things couldn't be fueled enough by that, they were spotted at another screening together at an inn in the Hamptons. Once one source got this, it got passed around the internet faster than bleach at a stain show. The truth is, though, Billy and Jenny had been friends for quite some time before this internet frenzy in 2015. 
not only have they gone to basketball games together, Billy's been to Jenny's shows numerous times, both her current band and with her previous one, Rilo Kylie. After the rumors began, Jenny was also in Netflix's A Very Merry Christmas. And earlier in 2015, the pair even did the 20th anniversary of the Poets House Walk Across Brooklyn Bridge, which is a charity event that Billy's done a few times. But where exactly did their friendship begin? The answer is the Austin City Limits Music Festival in 2008. Jenny was playing with Rilo Kiley in the middle of covering Love Hurts, and then she notices Bill right there on her side of the stage. And admittedly, a total distraction, but girl made it through, and it was only natural that some kind of introduction was going to happen after that. She and the band took Billy back to their tour bus, where he asked Jenny for a water and a beer. He then took his hat off, poured the water into his hat, and then put the hat back on his head. Jenny knew right at that moment that they were going to be friends for a long time. The two hung pretty tight for the rest of the night, but that's not where the story ends. Jenny's band had a post-show plan. Everyone take mushrooms and watch the first presidential debate between Barack Obama and John McCain. Jenny wasn't really feeling like doing mushrooms too much that night, so in an unexpected turn of events, she soon found herself in a golf cart with Bill Murray traveling across the music festival grounds. Apparently, his plan involved tracking down food for the entire band. So together, Jenny and Bill came across a food stand selling barbecue sandwiches, and Billy bought every last sandwich that they had. They carted it on back to the tour bus and descended upon the band with a massive amount of food. I can't even imagine like the surreal experience of that being at this massive music festival that you just played and having your band leader accompanied by Bill Murray personally deliver you more sandwiches than you could ever imagine. And you're on hallucinogens, just like, wow. The crew watched the debates together and as time rolled on, according to Jenny, Bill just kinda disappeared into the night. This was only the first time Billy and Jenny had hung out and I can imagine after a magical experience like this how you know, every time you run into each other, you embrace and seem thick as thieves to the point that people speculate you're romantically involved. Jenny's camp has always denied the rumors of their relationship, especially since she'd been dating her guitarist for forever at the time the rumors began. And Billy's always going to be dodgy whenever asked about who he's dating, Jenny or whomever at any point in his life when he hasn't been married. But it doesn't make their relationship any less special. At the end of the day, I don't know. Who really cares? They have a pretty chill, respectful friendship, no matter what anyone wants to label it. And honestly, I kind of like the mystery, too. I'm sure you know about this rumor, Justin. I've never heard this rumor. and uh, You've never heard that rumor? I've never heard that what? rumor. What? That they were dating? No, no, not Whoa, at all. And I'm okay. like, Brill and Jenny Lewis, too. I've never heard that rumor. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, man, you know, I've listened to you you know, tell about 50 or so of these Murray <laughs> moments. And I've never, uh, I've never felt like jealousy when listening to one of them until, uh, until this particular one. Cause there's like a multitude of jealousies. It's just mm -hmm. like, what would be more fun is, uh, riding around with Jenny Lewis in the golf court after, <laughs> after Austin city limits or riding, being opposite Bill Murray or, uh, just being on mushrooms <laughs> with your band and then Bill Murray and, and your band leader comes back with a bunch of barbecue sandwiches, man, that's pretty wild. But I know. no, never heard that rumor. It, it was. I definitely remember when that came out. And um, yeah, when a, a Very Merry Christmas came out, there was even more speculation because it was after that had even started. But um, 
man, that story continues to crack me up. And it just makes sense that after you, you know, do something kind of wacky like that with someone, you're always going to be like, yo, yeah, we got that. We got that special time. <laughs> well, thanks for that Murray moment. Of course. Well, we're about ready to wrap it up. Yeah, we got to wrap it up. But do we have any final thoughts on the fabulous stains before we call this episode quits? Oh man. Um one real quick tidbit. There's a there's a scene where Fee Waybill um of the Metal Corpses is supposed to be buying cocaine from someone and of course you're not going to be doing real cocaine in a movie, but I guess as a as a prank, as a real funny joke, someone replaced the fake stuff with actual cocaine. So that scene there's like five different takes Wable said um, of then doing that and it is actually real cocaine that they're doing in that scene so I think that that's pretty entertaining and also incredibly unfortunate because you're not expecting that yeah really kind of speaking I guess my only final thought would be kind of going off of what you were saying with that scene the coke scene that's really uh, outside of like one other little scene the only scene of drug use in the movie which I feel is like drugs sometimes granted I think that goes hand in hand with like rock and roll movies and stuff but sometimes I feel like the drug and sex is like almost like monopolizes a lot of movies yeah. about bands and yeah. I, I feel I don't know not to sound like super square but it almost like <laughs> I, I feel like I like this movie how it's not so focused on like the drug habits of all the band mm-hmm. members like it's just there's a couple scenes there you know it's around but it's more focusing on the relationships and them like playing their music but I appreciate that about the movie yeah, that is a really good point I hadn't thought of. that there, there aren't too many. There is like one overdose scene and... Yeah, actually not. I think about it. I forgot. <laughs> Somebody does die of a drug overdose. <laughs> but for the most part... 20% of the movie, <laughs> drug use. The rest of it, 80% drug free. 80, dare. Maybe that death free. makes up for like 30%. Maybe 70-30. <laughs> For the most part, there's not that much drugs are not part of this movie. That's not to say that, you know, there weren't some people that were on drugs. Yeah. Actors in the movie. But, you know, different time. Now I wish I was on drugs. I am on drugs, Justin. Well, we should uh, wrap it up there. Um, Hope you enjoyed our discussion on Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Lindsay, what, uh, what do we have coming up? next episode next episode we have um, a real fun one I haven't revisited in a few years but I do recall loving it very much and that is Better Off Dead Better Off Dead such a (laughs) weird wacky movie yeah I'm I'm looking forward to yeah me too getting into that one well we'll have that up next time Uh, thank you again for listening if you want to hit up old episodes you can check out our website don'tpushballspodcast.com Uh, We've got an archive there of everything that we've put together over the last uh, year or so. Please do follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Don't push pause podcast. If you want to reach us directly for any question whatsoever, you can contact us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on uh, Apple Music, please uh, rate and review us. We'd appreciate it. It helps us out quite a bit. helps us uh, show our growth. 
Um, and if you are streaming us and not downloading, please give us a download. Please subscribe. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.